This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello, everybody. This is Yacid Ortega, Chasing Encounters Summer Special Edition. Um, we are in the park today. Queen's Park here in Toronto on a summer afternoon. This is uh, today's August the 1st uh, and we have uh, a friend Natalia Baliasnikova. Yeah, that's really close. I always think, you know, like people mispronounce my last name all the time, but I don't mind it actually, but I really appreciate when they try, you right. know, so kudos. Right. Yeah, I think like an anglicized version is Baliasnikova, um, in Russian is Baliasnikova. Oh, Baliasnikova. Baliasnikova. So it's yeah. more like a little, the, the accent is in another syllable, Baliasnikova. Yeah. Baliasnikova, yeah. But like in English, people mostly use Baliasnikova and I don't mind that. Right. I'm, I'm pretty flexible about it. And so. Baliasnikova is your father's last name or yeah. your mother's last name? My father's last name father's and my mother's last name. Is it my, the same? Well, they got I mean, married, so she took his last name. Oh, <laughs> I see what you mean. You know. This podcast is always about just you know language, identities, yeah. culture, the cultural background, and one of the yeah. beauties about this podcast is getting the chance to talk about those things that we never get to talk yeah. with other people because of academia and all of those sorts of mm -hmm. things. Sometimes we are disconnected from from that personal part, and that's that's why I invite folks to to have a little chat, yeah. more informal about where all of this is coming yeah. from. So. Uh, the first thing that I would like to know about you is tell us a little bit about who you are. I understand you're originally from Russia, from Russia, right? Yeah. And then you moved to Canada. Correct. And then that's the only thing that I know. So tell us a little bit about yeah. Russia, the place where you were born, because I don't want to say <laughs> the place where you were born. I have an assumption, but I don't want to yeah. say it. Tell us a little bit about Russia, the place where you were born, maybe family, relatives, whatever. And then why did you come to Canada? Oh, yeah, for sure. So um, I was born in um, the Russia, then Soviet Union, mm -hmm. uh, in a city called Leningrad, Leningrad. Uh, which later in 1991, with the fall of Soviet Union, was uh, renamed to St. Petersburg, which is a regional historic name um, of this city. Um, And yeah, I was born and, you know, I lived through the Soviet Union times, the fall of the Soviet Union, the perestroika years, uh, and then the new capitalist era of Russian history that brought a lot of um, cultural shifts and changes, um, opened borders and some, mm, you know, mm, um, some mm. parts of that was a good thing. Um, I was born into a family of academics. My mm, mother is a mm, professor. Mm, uh, my father is a, a researcher. Uh, he's, he, is, he works in the Institute of the Arctic in St. Petersburg. My mom works in uh, Herzen Pedagogical University of Russia uh, for the UNESCO chair. Um, so I've always been surrounded by... I, I basically grew up in academia. I've been mm. always surrounded mm. by books and very interesting discussions uh debates you know that usually took place in the kitchen people discussing very um critical parts of the history of the um the society 
I've always I always remember you know mom writing something or preparing for lectures or mom's students coming over and or colleagues and they're talking about work in the university um, or I remember my father he would go on expeditions um, to collect data he's an oceanographer so he maps um, the you know the the sea floor the ocean floor so I kind of I grew up in this um, like context of people being researchers and just public intellectuals I've always been drawn to it um, and uh, when I was um, you know of age just went to university I got my degree and um, as a teacher of um, English and Spanish languages um, then I went and I got um, a PhD in Russia. Oh, so you already had a PhD before? <laughs> yeah, I got a PhD in methods of teaching foreign languages. Mm -hmm. It was a very interesting part, you know, time of my life, um, just like being in a very traditional academia mm -hmm. with a mentor and, mm -hmm. you know, big beautiful offices with wall-to-wall -wall sta you know, wow. staircase and, you know, wow. just growing up, you know, just being mentored in this type of traditional academia um, with like the professor is God because they have so much knowledge right that it's been transmitted to the students mm -hmm. um, and right well soon after I defended I started working as an um, as an instructor in the university and I won a Fulbright grant to go and um, do professional development work in the United States and so when I went to United States, I was... When, when was this, approximately? 2011, I think. Okay. I think. Where, where in the States? In the University of Kansas. Okay. Um, it was such a transformative experience for me, just because I, like, I, I experienced a very different academic culture, mm -hmm. the way that research is made, the, you know, access to things, even though I was, I grew up in um, very academic, um, family and you know very academic community just by virtue of like being in the United States I got access to more recent publications you mm. know journals mm. that the Russian academic life at that time didn't we didn't have access to any of those you know very recent works because of the paywalls oh, right and all this that's the reason why. yeah all of these things right because it's just so expensive mm. um, it's expensive for North American universities you know it's even right. more expensive for right. Um, universities outside mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know this dominant space right right so um, I, I got really excited and I really wanted to you know get an opportunity to work abroad um, so I started applying for jobs and then I encountered what my mentor Andrea Shan calls <laughs> credential and certification regime because I encountered that even though I had a PhD I, I was lacking the networks and recognition of this degree as legitimate to in be the United States in the United States and Canada in Europe to mm. be considered I hear you um, a candidate for positions especially I think maybe like some people who have their degrees in other fields mm. you mm. know um, they may be can argue for legitimacy, but as an e English language teacher from Russia, 
it was really hard to be recognized as a peer for me. So I made a decision to come to Canada and get another degree. Another for, PhD. Another PhD for, for this opportunity to equal the playing field a little bit for myself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that I could participate in this community of practice and more equal, right. um, you know, basis. Um, and I applied, I applied for to five universities uh, in Canada. Um, I got accepted to OIZ <laughs> and to LLED at UBC, um, but um, LLED, it just seemed like a better fit for me at that time. So I got, I, um, so I joined, you know, and I came and it was an adventure. Yeah. And here I am now. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That, this is great. I have now that you know that now that you responded to my first initial question, I have so many questions, <laughs> but I but no, I'm not gonna ask them just yet. Okay. Because I want I'm I'm interested in something else, not else. Just to yeah. continue, you said something that you were a teacher of foreign languages or languages or an expert yeah. in languages, and you mentioned the idea of Spanish. Yeah. And. I assume that you know Spanish, and I, I think yes. you know how to speak Spanish. I'm not going to ask you to speak Spanish to me, <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a quote-unquote native speaker of Spanish, so it's not like I'm going to judge your Spanish, maybe at some point. But my curiosity is more like, why Spanish? Is like why I, You are not the only Russian that I know mm -hmm. that I'm interested in Spanish, and I always ask Russian people, like, there are so many languages in the planet, that why are you interested in Spanish? Is there yeah. a reason for you specifically that yeah. you were interested in Spanish? Yeah, well... Um, when I was in school, so most schools um, in St. Petersburg, um, you study at least one, sometimes two foreign languages as a part of your curriculum. Mm. Um, so in school, I studied English and French mm. um, and um, a little bit of German. German kind of didn't stick with me. So mm. I kind of stayed with the, you know, with English and French. Um, and when it came time for me to uh, go to university, the way that the Russian universities are structured, um, you don't just like go into university and you sometime uh, halfway through your bachelor's degree, you choose your major. No, you apply for a particular program from the get go. Mm. So you have to apply to a particular program and you get accepted to a particular program and you have to stay within this program until you graduate. Right, right. Um, so um, the university that I went to had a choice. They had um, an English program, um, French program, German program, and a Spanish program. Mm. And the reason for that is because these are the four dominant languages that were taught in Russian schools. Mm. Uh, German, because it was the language of the enemy after the <laughs> Second World War. Huh. So um, people, were, people were taught this language. Um, English, because it was, you know, I guess the second language of the enemy. I don't know, <laughs> during the Cold you War. You have to learn the language of the enemy, yeah. I guess. French is just because there's always been a connection between French and the um, this idea of like being an educated European. Mm. You know, French mm. being the working language mm. of so many institutions in Europe. French being the dominant language of many courts mm. um, in the, you know, the Tsarist, the emperor times. Um, and Spanish was the second popular, the last popular language. Um, and I think its popularity rose after uh, Soviet Union participated in the Spanish uh, mm. civil war against Franco. Mm. Um, and then later on um, with the ties of the Soviet Union to the 
Latin American communist regimes. Mm -hmm. um, so these were kind of like the four dominant languages that were quite often taught in schools. Of course, there were other schools, like some schools taught Polish, some schools taught now later on, you know, some schools teach Mandarin, and Japanese, Korean, other languages. But these were always the four kind of languages that were taught in schools. And because my university where I studied, it was a teacher's uh, university. So everybody who went to that university was studying to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. These were the four languages that mm -hmm. were chosen. Um, and because I already spoke English and French, I knew that I didn't like German. I went to Spanish. Oh, so it was like just that. You, I, you know what? The reason why I ask you this question is because I thought maybe you were very interested in the Latin American culture yeah. and the Spanish culture, yeah. and or you or you have been watching these telenovelas yeah. that you got excited. And, oh, yeah. I, well, I need to learn Spanish. I always thought that these are the reasons why <laughs> it's people a little, learn. It's a little sadder than that. It's a little, but I did like um, in my program, uh, my Spanish program, we we learned other languages so I learned Portuguese mm -hmm. um, and I mean I because of that um, because of that program I did develop great right. interest and admiration for mm -hmm. the many cultures um, languages and you know histories of Central America Latin America Spain mm, um, obviously learned a lot about you know the colonialism and you know post-colonial histories and literatures um, yeah I yeah, I had a big collection of Spanish language books that I had to leave when I moved here. Interesting. They're now in my parents' garage. So in the CEFR level, mm -hmm. how do you rate yourself in your proficiency of Spanish? A1, A1 B1. A1, You said A1? Yes. Really? No, yeah. Is that the highest one? No, the highest one is C1. Okay, C1 then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was thinking I already, I already forgot I my, my CFR. I used to be real. Yeah, I think, no, I, right. I, I, I consider myself pretty proficient. Good, yeah. very good. I want to ask you in Spanish in a moment. Okay. When, when you less expect it. Okay. <laughs> so what, what good, you, you're talking about education. At some point you started mm -hmm. thinking, I'm going to be an educator. Yeah. I want to do this for the rest of my life, whether mm -hmm. teaching English or teaching Spanish mm -hmm. or languages or community related research or gerontology, whatever, mm -hmm. what made you think that you wanted to be an educator? I think that all comes from family for me. Mm. You know, my, my mother being a professor and educator, both of her parents were professors and educators. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also comes with the idea of just I really like being around people, mm. you know, and it was something that mm. I was naturally drawn to because I don't feel that, I don't see educator in the sense of like being a sage on the stage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I quite openly admit that I don't know everything and yeah, I never yeah, will. Uh, but it is for me about organizing the learning experience of people. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of everything, right? Like mm -hmm. you bring a little bit of knowledge, you bring a little bit of like psychology, a little bit of organizing, right. a little bit of drama, of you know, a little bit of like, you know, um, performance even mm -hmm, um, and mm -hmm. for me all these qualities of an educator it's what something that you know kind of fell on my soul and like really fits with 
me as a person. Right. I've, I've briefly considered, you know, being like a tour guide or something <laughs> like that. And I do think that a lot of like people who share these qualities, right. you know, like if you're a great like storyteller, mm. you, you can be mm. a good teacher mm. and educator. So all of these things mm. come together for mm. me. No, definitely. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Now, within education, I noticed from your profile and mm -hmm. from other conversations that we have had before, The, one of your main topics is educational gerontology. Yes, yes. And I'm surprised because I never heard about it. I, I know what gerontology is. Yeah. We, many people may know what this is. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. But I don't want to say... What is it? <laughs> no, like talking about older people mm -hmm. or elderly. Yeah. And then... Unfortunately, people don't talk about these things, you know, but I, I'm going into a different direction that I didn't want to, but I'll go back as to what I wanted to say. But what is this, I, this educational gerontology? What is this in general? Yeah. So, um, educational gerontology is basically um, a field of, um, that sits on the intersection of educational studies and gerontology, mm -hmm. which comes from the name. Um, It's a field that tries to understand learning experiences in later life, right? right? So I, I would call it, like, in, in my um, experience, it's a subset of adult education. Okay, Some people mm. who come from a more gerontological perspective, mm -hmm. for them it would be a subset of health sciences, mm -hmm. right? So it's a field that kind of takes a lot of things together and meshes them um, and allows for um, a very diverse interpretations mm -hmm. of this term. Um, so, for example, some people, they would uh, try to understand how cognitive um, aging impacts learning. Mm. Some people, they would try to like, understand how ageist stereotypes impact mm. learning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. people, they would try to understand how to organize learning experiences right. for older people. Mm. Some people, they uh, try to see... Um, what are the economic um, and socioeconomic impacts of involving um, and training um, all the demographic for the labor force. So it's a very, very big field. Interesting. It, like, it's a very narrow field, but right. within it, it's very diverse. Um, I've met a lot of different people uh, since I started doing this work, and everybody takes a very mm. different perspective on what it. Um, so, what's your perspective? What is your specific? Um, yeah. Work? So, I worked with um, older language learners. Language learners. Yeah. You mean English. English. Learners? English as a, as an additional language okay, learners. Older immigrants. Mm. So, the way that I um, conceptualize my work within the field of education and gerontology, I try to understand how ageist discourses impact this process mm. uh, and what we as educators can do to mitigate the impact of this um, discourses right. on the lear language learning experiences of the older immigrants. Um, I think that it kind of falls within the larger kind of critical paradigm. You know, people look at um, racialized discourses mm. of like linguism and all these other marginalizing discourses that impact people's uh, engagement, right. um, their, their experience in this, mm. in learning this um, mm. new content. Mm. Um, I was, for example, told, oh, like you have to fix your accent, you will never be a good teacher, yeah. right? So I yeah. kind of internalized yeah. that. 
or you know people people here you know boys that do better girls do better course, you know there's all these cultural stereotypes right. about like this this culture is outgoing this is a shy and right. you know they don't these don't like to work this this like to work together and I feel like for me coming from a critical perspective um, I wanted to understand this other marginalizing discourse which is an ageist discourse yes. in the experiences of this population because they are they they are impacted by so many right because mm -hmm. they are immigrants they are you know there's a lot of racial uh, racialized discourse there is linguism mm -hmm. and on top of mm -hmm. that there's ageism because like mm -hmm. we hear that you know after five you can never learn you know there's compounding bilingualism this bilingualism right we have we have all this like um, um, expectations of how well people will do in language learning along mm. their life course right so we hear that um, it's harder to learn new languages when you're an adult and when you're older adults you, you have so many cognitive impairment impairments you can't you can't study you will never learn right so mm. for me these are um, even though there is a lot of evidence coming from the cognitive fields you know it's not that they're not true but as we right. all know right. right it's not the only um, way to understand and I so knowing all that and learning from the participants about their experiences um, mm. I try to kind of devise the new um, gerogogy, which is the gerogogy. <laughs> gerogogy, yeah. What is this? Gerogogy. Yeah. yeah, it's wow. uh, you know, there's pedagogy, there's andragogy, oh and there's gerogogy. <laughs> yeah. The pedagogy of the elderly. I the, don't know if the elder, the word elderly is. Yeah, of is the it, older is it adult. Problematic. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it? Yeah, a little bit. Is it? Yeah. So when I say elderly, it's problematic. It's. It's you can tell with yourself. I don't, don't think use, it's problem. Don't use the word. I, I prefer older adult. Okay. Yeah, so because it's less I restricting. Say older adult. I prefer that. No, yeah. no, I know you, but yeah. I, I because one of the things about right. this podcast is is get the message to people out there on how, what, what yeah. how to use language right. in a manner that is yeah. more respect and and because this is the first time I yeah. talk about these issues. Yeah. I can keep going saying elderly people or whatever, yeah. and then. What, I, what if I don't learn right. this? And I, this is about learning. Right. So is I it? think for me, like I prefer not to use elderly, mm -hmm. but some of my participants, mm -hmm. they wanted to be called elderly mm -hmm. and right. elder. Right. It, it carried significance for them. For so them. I think it's, I wouldn't call it a problematic term, you know, like black and white, but there are people who don't want to use that yeah. word. There are people who do want to, and they embrace this word, you know, like mm -hmm. they say, yes, I'm a senior. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. That's when, like, word. But like some people say, no, senior, it's an ageist term because yeah, it's, yeah. Um, you know, it kind of brings all the stereotypes and right. it kind of, you know, essentializes a person. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't use it, but I know people do. And so I wouldn't say it's a problematic term. Well, it's good to discuss. Yeah. It's good to know that there are different yeah. ways of how to dress exactly. it and how people are using it. Exactly. And then you prefer other people prefer yeah. to say that. But I want to use the word that you use. Say yeah. it again. I'm going to take my older adult. Older adult. Yeah. Older adult. Yeah. Okay. So exactly. See, because yeah. like I said, one of the the, 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 the goals of this yeah. podcast is to bring this knowledge right. to people out there so they know. I also so use assuming, senior quite often. Okay. I use senior. All right. yeah. That makes sense. Right. So anyways, moving on to the next topic is I also understand that you 
are quite knowledgeable about what we call community-engaged research. Mm, for so sure. I, I want you to speak a little bit about how you understand or conceptualize to let, let us know mm -hmm. what is community-engaged right. research, and then later you can right. sort of you know circle back to to educational generally and how do you mix them yeah. together? Yeah. So the field of like community and research <laughs> you know there's community-based research yeah. there is um, action research mm, uh, mm. I prefer to use community engaged research because for me it carries the idea of working together mm, mm, um, mm. that um, you researchers don't just come and place themselves mm, within uh, different mm, diverse communities mm. but they actually draw on the needs um, of diverse populations to inform their research right. so for me uh, particularly it was very important when I was developing my research proposal for my my PhD uh, work and now as well for some of the you know work that I'm proposing here in Toronto is to kind of position myself um, as a collaborator first. So I have my own, you know, academic curiosities, um, but I am willing to put them on the back burner mm. and to ask the community partners the following questions. Do they need research? <laughs> because do they, do, they? do they even need this research, do they? right? Good question. Yeah, because some, you know, they don't even want you there, yeah, right? Yeah. If they do need research, what forms they would like it mm, to take yeah. um, and if you know after we talk about that like what are the outcomes like what deliverables can I bring mm. to that and then we discuss other details about data and ownership and mm. things like that mm. but I think like starting from this point like just you know um, developing this relationship and saying like do you even want me here as a researcher or like or not and if they say no I, I'm um, I'm very willing to you know take a hike because I think there is a lot of ego mm. that a lot of researchers bring with them kind of feeling that they're all knowledgeable and mm. they can do good True. right and like our understanding of what it means to go to do good for the for the community even like for them for them for the community it's really informed by our own mm. worldview mm. Um, so I think that's that's very problematic uh, for me, and you know um, I'm not the only one who thinks that. Obviously, there's right. been a lot of discussion about that, and um, the way around we position ourselves. So I want to take it like community-engaged research. Kind of for me takes a different, like it flips, mm. right? It's mm. like I'm here mm. to help you guys. If you want this, good. If you don't want this, also good. But like let's let's figure out what protocols work for all of us mm. so we can meet um, different needs right and I think and and I mean and I've learned that in Vancouver I didn't think about that until I came to Canada to right. be honest right. um, <coughs> I really learned that through working in the UBC Learn Exchange where I did my P dissertation work um, and kind of like working in the downtown east side of Vancouver uh, which has been so abused by researchers you know because everybody comes there and <laughs> I heard the stories about like um, okay so there was this one guy he told me so I participated in the same study five different times uh, because different researchers they all want to come and learn about this but they don't talk to each other and I just keep repeating the same thing over and over wow. again and like so there was a lot of disillusionment um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I 
So I was taught that those protocols by the people that I worked with in the downtown east side and through the work that's done in the Learn Exchange. Um, so that's what it is for me, um, community-engaged research. So um, but that's why I prefer to use it instead of like community-based no, I, I research. Like the, that's why I asked this question because I really like, I mean, I, I'm used to know and I know mm -hmm. about community-based yeah. research, which I, I like the idea of working with the community. Mm -hmm. But the work of engage it, it implies to me, obviously engagement, but more action oriented, yeah. yeah, so to speak, right? Yeah. Have you experienced any challenges, you know, working with the community? That I, 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 you know, it's not like you are a researcher, you come here and mm -hmm. an interview and buy. You have to engage yeah. with the community. What yeah. is one of the, I would say, biggest challenges or the main challenges yeah. that you have faced doing this work? Yeah. So, for, so I started um, in the UBC Learning Exchange as a volunteer first, and I've been volunteering with them as an ESL teacher for quite a long time before I even approached mm. them with mm. an idea of doing mm. my study there. Mm. Mm. Um, so that was another part of like building relationships was really important for me. I think the biggest challenge uh, for a lot of community-engaged research is this idea of relationship mm -hmm. because it really blurs a lot of boundaries um, and um, to navigate along this like very blurred um, boundaries of like now I'm a researcher now I'm your friend you know um, it, it's it's it, it can be very challenging and it requires a lot of dialogue open dialogue with the community partners uh, because they might need they have you know like we can't just say that oh everybody is just like holding hands and everything is great mm. you know we live in this <laughs> neoliberal capitalistic world like they they have their demand needs of like grant funding putting names on things i have my needs you know the community the the community members the stakeholders have yeah, their needs as well so there there is a lot of you know it's a complex very fragile process that mm. requires a lot of dialogue and a lot of like open and sometimes uncomfortable conversations about different roles um, in community-engaged projects. And I think that for me it was a challenge because I had to learn it, right? So sometimes I felt like, oh, I need to like, I, I don't want to talk about it because what if, what if, like, what if they say no? What if, you know, um, but I learned to talk things through almost like in therapeutic way. Right. You know, you, you talk and you, you lay right. your cards out you're trying to be very transparent mm. I think that there are projects there are research philosophies that it's, it would be very hard for them Interesting. right because again like it comes to like the question who gets to author things who gets true, to put their true, name on true, things true, 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 true. you know who like all of these little things um, and there are as I said there are different different approaches to work which can be hard um, and I think that would be like a challenge to prepare a lot but also be very very flexible right. so I'll give an example I had um, so a part of my work I did storytelling um, and uh, poetry work with the participants and I wanted to publish a book with their stories and their mm -hmm. poems um, as a token of my appreciation for them so they would have you know a publication um, my ethics uh, certificate required that I anonymize the participants to protect their privacy but they said but how are you like 
it's my poem it's my story i want my name attached to it i don't want it to be anonymized i don't want it to be you know participant x i want it to have my name attached to it and that was a very difficult conversation we had to have because on one hand i wanted to make sure that they don't feel like their their identities are being erased from this stories because it's their life story mm. but on the other hand i didn't want to put my project in jeopardy mm. by mm. exposing their names mm. because i was bound by some of the ethics that mm. i you know signed as to mm. um so that was like one of the examples wow. when you need to have this conversation Difficult. and you need to really you know walk this very fine line about what's good for them what's good for us what's good for everybody um so that's just one of the examples of how right. sometimes right. you are faced with these challenges that and you need to you know you just need to talk through them right mm -hmm. um and sorry and then like when the project is over so i there's another thing because we have developed a relationship mm -hmm. right what happens after my dissertation has been published <laughs> defended yeah, yeah. i'm in toronto right like what is like what is my like yeah. how do we continue this how relationship how do you reach out to them exactly exactly and like and i feel it's very important i work with the you know the older adults many of them are in the 80s so like i can't just you know helicopter out of their life mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. i can't because Definitely. we developed a relationship like we are friends on the other hand i'm a researcher so right do you skype with them or uh, when I was in Vancouver, I would, you know, we would, I would regularly phone them and we would go for walks and things like that. Um, I invited two of them for my graduation oh, as my right. guests. Nice. Um, so, you know, they got to come to campus right. and see nice. the culmination of this project. Um, now when I'm here, yeah, with the COVID times, I'm trying to... Um, I'm staying in touch through, with some of them through the Learning Exchange because it's a community-based, uh, it's a community engagement center mm -hmm. um, of UBC in the downtown side, and they have some protocols around it. So I kind of follow life of some, but with some, unfortunately, I lost touch, and I felt like, and I felt really bad about it mm -hmm. too, right? Because I was like, oh my god, I let them down. So like, it's a part of this relationship that you kind of. With some of my other projects that I did back in Russia, I don't even remember the names of these people. <laughs> but with these, you know, it's such like it's a deep connection. It's right. a deep relationship. Definitely. I understand. I yeah. hear you and I agree with you. Mm -hmm. As researchers, that's something that what I've been doing, even with my own dissertation, is I my my methods are ethnographic methods, yeah. right? And then I always advocate to keep mm -hmm. being in touch with the participants. Yeah. Because we become part mm -hmm. of the community exactly we are not separated we are yeah. them we are yeah. all together yeah but i don't want to talk about my research here because <laughs> this is your time oh thanks but no but it's true i totally agree with you you know like i've been to some of their homes you mm. know they cooked me dinner mm. and like mm. how do you just exactly. peace out after that you right. can't right mm -hmm. um and i think that i mean for some people for some researchers it just doesn't work, right? Because they have different objectives in their mm. in their research. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, you sign up for life to stay in touch, you know. Right. And um, right. and when it when it goes away, it goes away. But at least, like, you do your best. You try, right? Got it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But there was important that you were talking about art and telling stories and the narratives. Yes. I want to know a little bit 
en cómo, cómo esto está importante para ti, el arte, el contar historias, las narrativas, cómo está todo esto conectado? Pues mira, en, en mi vida siempre estaba muy interesada en diferentes tipos de arte. Estaba en teatro de cuando era joven, pintaba, escribía uh, diferentes narrativas, mm, y novelas mm, y todo mm. esto. Nunca pensaba que el arte y ciencia mm. pueden estar juntos. Wow. Nunca sabía de este arts-based research. Huh. Yo no sabía que existía. Sí, sí, sí. Um, y sí, me enseñaron en UBC, me enseñaron mis profesores uh, que sí es, es, era posible, que era posible añadir un poco de arte y um, dar posibilidad a la gente expresarse de diferentes modalidades. Por ejemplo, en mi, en mi um, tesis, uh, primero yo pensé que, ajá, Voy a pedir a los participantes que, me, que escribieran uh, historias de su vida, de inmigración, de su aprendizaje de idioma, da, 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 y que uh, uh, será un... un um, todo será descrito. Sí. ¿sí? Después yo voy a analizar text-based analysis y todo esto. Después yo vi que la gente no quería escribir, pero sino quería hablar. Y oh. cuando hablan, toman diferente como su identidad cambia, porque no están escribiendo, buscando cada palabra y todo esto, pero están relatando una historia, historia de su vida y que se, y, y se sienten muy diferentes. Después, un poco tiempo pasó y después yo vi que hay gente que no, no tiene, um, no quieren hablar tanto, que se sienten tímidos, no quieren hablar, pero les gusta dibujar. Entonces yo le pues ustedes pueden, pueden dibujar su historia de vida. Right. Y nosotros podemos, podemos discutir, platicar sobre cómo es esta historia. Entonces así yo añadí dibujos de multimodal narratives en mi, en mi tesis. Sí. Y después, sí, esto es como estaba añadiendo, añadiendo right, right, right. mi... Mi idea era encontrar una modalidad en que ellos se sentían más cómodos de expresarse. Right. Uh, y para unos era arte. So I noticed that, that mm. the, Natalia as a researcher brought all of these ideas of arts-based research into her own research, you know, realizing that some of the participants would not necessarily, you know, write stories mm -hmm. but they would like to tell their stories orally and others would use different types of arts like drawing and whatever to tell their stories yeah. and then for me this is a good example of how research should be it's about the participants mm -hmm. yeah. and it's not about us as researchers right mm -hmm. i mean we are bringing the methods based on the participants needs and exactly. what they need and how they can express themselves exactly. whatever they need as yeah. opposed to me bringing oh well if you cannot do it well it's, it's your problem not exactly. my problem and that's what i love what you do and i agree with you the idea of um, narratives and storytelling mm. so the follow-up of this question is now that for our folks who are listening to this you are a professor at york university here in toronto So how are you going, or you are already, incorporating these ideas of art, storytelling, narratives, uh, education, sorry, uh, edu yeah, educational gerontology, engaged research, yeah. how, uh, how are you combining all of this? Tell us the secret, tell us, yeah. <laughs> tell us. 
I have. Um, so when I came to Toronto, I came with uh, three projects in mind mm -hmm. that I could do here. Um, one, I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, so York University has a center uh, for community engaged research. Um, I have, I'm, you know, I'm, I started looking into their work and I think I can um, bring some of my ideas there and see what they, as, as you know, people who are here on the yeah, ground, yeah. they know better. Um, but one, one project that I'm really interested in exploring is the intergenerational theater. Uh, it's an arts-based work which brings together the idea of, you know, intergenerational connection, which is a part of um, um, educational gerontology, of course, trying to kind of bring different um, age communities together and see how intergenerational theater can assist in adult education, right? In the development of um, different knowledges about the communities and the wider world. Um, I have a community partner, well, <laughs> I have a community partner in Sweden um, and they are the, um, a theater company that uses uh, theater to learn language. Um, in their case, it's Swedish as a, an additional language. So they work with Swedish immigrant, immigrants to Sweden. So I'm trying to see if we can replicate their work in Toronto um, and see if um, some of the promising practices that have been developed by their by by that theater company in Sweden mm. um, can be uh, with some modifications done here. Nice. So that's one of the projects that I'm interested in exploring. Um, another project um, that I've been working with, and I mean I can talk about that one for you know ages. It's called Phone Me Project. Phone Me, like Phone, phone Me. Yeah, like Phone Me. Uh, it's a project of the Digital Literacy Center at UBC. Mm. And it is basically a um, phone mediated poetry mm. that is mapped on an interactive map. Mm. So uh, the idea of that project is to kind of uh, merge the digital and the physical spaces of the community Sweet. so people can um there's a phone number we can dial it from here and say hey it's natalia and said and we are in queen's park and here's our poem Ooh, and sweet, then sweet. because um about this area and then this poem appears on a on an interactive map mm. with like a pin, yeah. our names, yeah. our voice, nice. the text, and it's a 3D image of Sweet. this card. So people can explore the area through our poetry. And they can hear different people in the same everything. park, for example, everything. different poems. Everything, Interesting. yeah. So this project was started um, yeah, in DLC and um, we started in the downtown east side, mm -hmm. uh, inviting different poets of the community to kind of uh, map their community mm -hmm. and to uh, counter and narrate um, the, a very negative image of mm -hmm. this area. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think, like, I'm really excited about bringing this uh, project uh, to Toronto and to see how, um, like how different communities can represent. We have some poems that are placed in Toronto already. Nice. Um, we have some poems like in Russia, we have poems all over BC, in Central America. Oh, like it's nice. a global, it's this a global platform. Um, but I'm trying to see how we can use it as an educational, um, not just an arts, arts, you know, activism, but also as an educational, um, platform to develop literacies or maybe mm. develop language practices or something Definitely. like that. 
So that's the second project. I'm really excited about it um, in Toronto. And we're also, um, the last project is the creative storytelling, um, drawing on my PhD work. Um, I haven't started working on it just yet because the COVID, you know, a lot of the um, senior services have been already struggling. So I'm oh, trying yeah. to give space and time for the services to recuperate true, true, before true. trying to attack them with definitely, my ideas. Definitely. Um, but yeah, but for now, you know, I'm just, it's my first month in Toronto. I'm just trying to <laughs> get to know the city and, you know, plan my syllabi and plan right. my courses right. and, you know, get to know the students and how things are done. Hmm. Everybody's going to be learning online, so I'm really trying to see how I can teach online effectively without, you know, Zoom fatigue of the students. Oh. So this has been my primary focus right now, is preparing for for my teaching in nice. the fall. Yeah, we, we have a few minutes more, but um, is there anything that you want to suggest our listeners to to study, to pay attention to in terms of educational gerontology or community engaged research something that you want to send out the message so guys you should pay attention to this or that mm. or what, anything that you want us to finish yeah, with today i think i think that for anybody who wants to do any kind of work in these areas um there well there needs to be attention paid to our biases that we bring into mm. any kind of work especially in like educational gerontology work um and i think a good The good thing is to be humble, <laughs> right? To be a little bit more humble um, because, you know, um, and not to be like, oh, I'm young, I know this, you don't know this, or, oh, I'm educated, I know this, you don't know this. So just to be more humble um, and pay attention to your biases and keep yourself in check uh, before you enter any type of work. Um, it has definitely helped me. <laughs> I think it can help people. Um, and there is a growing like field of research, right? There are different voices that are talking. Um, so to like, if you're reading about something, I think it's important to like not just read the most cited papers, but yes. also or like the most recognized books, but um, to read widely and learn before you enter any field, so you feel at least a little bit prepared. Right. Yeah. No, so definitely. Think, well, Natalia, thank you so much for coming today to our Chasing Encounters My podcast. Pleasure. This thank is you great. For, yeah, this park. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, this is Jacinda Ortega. This is Chasing Encounters, a summer special edition. Thanks for coming. See you guys next time. And so it was actually interesting. So I took the train and then my Google Maps said to get off at Wesley, Wellesley mm. yeah, Station. Somewhere.